This is Ham College, Episode 71, for November 30th, 2020. Ham College is brought to you by ICOM. Ham for the holidays. ICOM's new ID52A and IC705 give hours of fun and enjoyment working your favorite bands this holiday season. And by hamstudy.org, a great way to study for your next license exam. Good evening and welcome to another episode of Ham College. I'm Professor Thomas. And I'm Dean Martin. It still hasn't got old, has it? Uh, I guess it depends on who you ask. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's pretty funny, though. Good point. Good point. <laughs> well, how was your Thanksgiving? Uh, it was great. It's uh, It was fantastic. Kind of small and uh, just us and uh, just us, actually us and one family member. But uh, it was great. It was enjoyable. I didn't have to work, so that's a good thing. Yeah, true. Uh, yeah, we had a pretty good one here as well. We didn't go anywhere. We just stayed at home and uh, didn't really have any guests. But, you know, that's just the way it was this year. Couldn't uh, just, well, you know how it is. Yep. Yeah. Well, maybe next year will be different. I uh, kind of missed having the bigger uh, family get together. But uh, anyway, that'll pass soon enough. Last okay. time, we talked all about amateur television, slow-scan television, fast-scan television, and the, the common practices and, uh, you know, what what gear you might use. That has got me kind of interested in it. I, yeah. I would, would like to do something. Nobody here is is doing anything with that. Maybe one day. Yeah, it's a fascinating topic. And this month. Talk about operating methods, contests. Contests and DX operating, remote operation techniques, QS selling, RF network connected systems, and one that, that cut off on my printout. Oh, Cabrillo format didn't didn't print then. Oh, that's what, uh, yeah, it was off the edge of the cell. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, that was a convenient thing to happen there. Uh, it was convenient for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe how, did I get a buzzer for that? No, there's we. It wasn't. Well, it was a question, but it wasn't multiple choice. So we'll give you that. You got majority. It was an essay type thing, you know. <laughs> so anytime we're doing a show live, we've got something else going on at the same time, especially with Ham College. We do. We got the chat room going. And uh, you can get to the chat room at amateurlogic.tv forward slash chat. And it's uh, it's kind of a fun addition if you're watching the live stream. Uh, people in, trying to answer the questions in there in real time. And uh, just a lot of fun. It, and uh, what I always say is if you're watching the live stream and you're not in the chat room, you're missing half the fun. But uh, what's the rest of it, George? Yeah. 
And the follow-up question is, but which half? Which half? And only you know for sure. So, yeah. Now that it may still be a little fuzzy, it it could be. <laughs> well, now that we've got that out of the way, I guess uh, we should get on into the questions for tonight. There's a coin toss. Who won? Uh, I got heads. Oh, I got tails, and it is oh. on tails. Okay. So I'll uh, I'll t- ask you the first question here. Okay. What indicator is required to be used by U.S. licensed operators when operating a station via remote control and the remote transmitter is located in the U.S.? Is it A, slash, followed by the USPS two-letter abbreviation for the state in which the remote station is located? B, slash R, pound, where pound is the district of the remote station? C, slash, followed by the ARRL section of the remote station. Or D, no additional indicator is required. Okay, so what indicator is required if the U.S. to be used by U.S. licensed operators from remote station? Via remote and the transmitter is in the U.S. as well. Okay. Uh, stroke, stroke followed by. I, I don't think there's anything required for that. Matter of fact, I'm sure. I'm sure of that. I think the answer is D. No additional indicators required. Well, I'm going to agree with you, or else and I don't really know how to reason those out. But I'm sure that's the right answer. Yeah. Uh, if it's not, we've probably been breaking the law for uh, a number of years here. Yeah. Why? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. That's what the, everybody's saying in the well, almost everybody in the chat room. You're correct. Okay. Yeah, that just never uh, works anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's kind of tough. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, hit me with one. Okay. How about this one? Which of the following best describes the term self-spotting in connection with HF uh, contest operating? A, the often prohibited practice of posting one's own call sign and frequency on a spotting network. B, the acceptable practice of manually posting the call signs of stations on a spotting network. C, a manual technique for rapidly Zero beating or tuning to a station's frequency before before calling that station. D, an automatic method for rapidly zero beating or tuning to a station's frequency before calling that station. That's the question again. Which of the following best describes the term self-spotting in connection with HF contest operations? It doesn't have anything to do with zero beating a frequency. Um, it's got to be either A or B. Let's see. Self-spotting. I'm going to say it's A. I'm pretty sure that's right. The often prohibited practice of posting one's own call sign and frequency 
on a spotting network, and they're talking like a DX cluster or something yeah. like that. Maybe a I don't know, maybe a packet network or you know wherever people are posting DX stations that they've received. Now the FCC is not going to knock on your door if you do this, but uh, everybody's going to turn their nose up at you if you're spotting yourself in there. Uh, yeah, kind of defeats the purpose of being able to check propagation stuff like that. Because so you can uh, go in there and look at the call signs where they're coming from and, and kind of get a sense of uh, yeah how the propagation is. If you go posting your own call sign location on there, kind of defeats the whole thing. Okay, and everybody in the chat room gets a gold star beside their name on that one. Awesome. Here, you going to go for it one more time? From which of the following bands is amateur radio contesting generally excluded? Is it A, 30 meters? Uh, B, 6 meters. C, 2 meters. Or D, 33 centimeters. Well, I know it's not B or C. Uh, is there plenty of contesting on there? 33 centimeters. Uh, I think it's going to be A, 30 meters. Okay. It's going to be 30 meters. Uh Trying to remember that band chart. I've actually got it right here. I just don't memorize it, but I know there was some uh, some weird stuff on thirty meters. And I, I don't ever use thirty meters, so but I'm pretty sure that's going to be the right answer. That's that's what most people are saying in the chat room. I'll agree with you. And it is thirty meters. What frequency is thirty meters? I believe that's uh, isn't that like around ten megahertz? It's ten megahertz. Which of the following frequencies are sometimes used for amateur radio mesh networks? A, HF frequencies where digital communications are permitted. B, frequencies shared with various unlicensed wireless data services. C, cable TV channels 41 through 43. Or D, the 60-meter band channels centered on 5373. Which of the following frequencies are sometimes used for amateur radio mesh networks? Um, I think this is a fairly easy one. We know it's not uh, HF frequencies at all because we just don't have that wide of channels there to really send uh, uh, very fast data. So it would make a very good uh, mesh network. Uh, let's see, the 60-meter band channels centered on 5373. No, you know, 60 meters is channelized, and we don't have many channels there, and they're shared with other services. So uh, there, there's not enough bandwidth there for us to do that either. Cable TV channels 41 through 43... That is UHF, and yeah, uh, it's it's not that one either. It's frequency shared with various unlicensed wireless data services. That's my answer. Yeah, I would agree with that. That's what they're all saying over in the chat room. 
And that is correct. You know, we share some of uh, our allocations fall into um, the, the same frequencies as Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Wi-Fi is unlicensed. So it's kind of convenient that we can take advantage of that gear to build a mesh network with. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Have you ever played around with that? I never have. Have you? No, I uh, had an old router, and I was going to load the uh, the software on there, but mine was the uh, it was an old Leaksys WRT54G. Remember mm-hmm. those, the blue and black one? Yeah. And mine, I got mine. I think I bought it at Walmart because my other one died, and that's all I could get. And they have a uh, a I think it was called a neutered version, which had. Uh, just a very limited amount of memory in it, and it would install the firmware. So I, I didn't buy another one just to do that. I've got one that uh, wasn't a neutered version. I think I still have it. I'd have to go look out in the storeroom and see. But, yeah, I, I had one of those. I, I never did that, though. You know, if if you're not close enough to someone else who has one, it's going to kind of like be a private mesh. There won't really be anybody there but you. It's 2.4 yeah. doesn't go very far. Yeah. I I thought I always thought if we had a better line of sight, it would be kind of cool to uh, to put it together between us. It would. Um, yeah. Sharing files and so forth. But of course, we got fast enough Internet connections now, but, but back in the day, it would have been kind of nice. Oh, yeah. What is the function of a DX QSL manager? Is it A, to allocate frequencies for de-expeditions? B, to handle the receiving and sending of confirmation cards for a DX station. C, to run a net to allow many stations to contact a rare DX station. Or D, to relay calls to and from a DX station. A DXQSL manager. So that's uh, that's for QSL cards like these. My last one I got. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, pretty sure it's to manage those. So A would not be right to allocate frequency. Frequencies. Uh, I think it's going to be B to handle resending, receiving and sending of confirmation cards for a DX station. But uh, C to run the net. I don't know. And D's, D wouldn't be right either. It's got to be B to handle the receiving and sending of confirmation cards for a DX station. I'm going to agree with you. That makes good sense. And Everybody in the chat room thinks so. Okay. Uh, next one here. During a VHF UHF contest, in which band segment would you expect to find the highest level of single sideband or CW activity? A, at the top of each band, usually in a segment reserved for contests. B, in the middle of each band, usually on the national calling frequency. C, in the weak signal segment part of the band, with most of the activity near the calling frequency. 
Or D, in the middle of the band, usually 25 kilohertz above the national calling frequency. During a VHF-UHF contest, in which band segment would you expect to find the highest level of SSB and CW activity at the top of each band? That's not it. Um, you know, the top of the band is not, so not normally used in contesting. That's down further in the band. Generally, always within the general portion of the band. Uh, well, VHF, UHF, uh, uh, that would be the technician portion, too. Um, let's see. B, in the middle of each band, usually on the national calling frequency. Everybody can't talk on the same frequency, so... Yeah, I don't think that's it. D, in the middle of the band, usually 25 kilohertz above the national calling frequency. That would still only be like one channel there, or one frequency, if you went 25 kilohertz above the national calling frequency. But, you know, a lot of people use the calling frequency, so I would think in a contest, the answer is going to be C, in the weak signal segment of the band, with most of the activity near the calling frequency. Because, uh, yeah, DX, uh, contesting on VHF and UHF, is going to be weak signals uh, for the <clears throat> most part, you would think, and if you did it near the, the calling frequency, uh, other people might just happen to be listening around there. So that, that makes the most sense to me. Yeah. And most people in the chat room are saying that. Well, let's see. And it is. So, oh, looked out on that one. Yeah, I wasn't 100% sure about that one, to be honest with you. What you said makes sense. We'll take a quick break. Ham for the holidays. ICOM's newest handheld amateur radio is the ID52A. Larger radio, larger color display, and louder audio. This VHF-UHF digital transceiver is much more than a replacement for the ID51A. The color display is 2.3 inches for exceptional viewability, and the audio is 80% louder. This multifunction dual-band D-Star transceiver supports DR mode for easy access to local repeaters based on internal GPS information, as well as terminal and access point modes. The ID52A also has Bluetooth for audio and data control. The IC705 is the perfect sidekick for hams who like to enjoy what both the great indoors and outdoors have to offer. It's the perfect QRP companion, base station features and functionalities at the tips of your fingers in a portable package covering HF, 6 meters, 2 meters, and 70 centimeters. This compact rig weighs in just over 2 pounds with RF direct sampling for most of the HF band and IF sampling for frequencies above 25 megahertz. 4.3 inch color touchscreen with live band scope and waterfall, 5 watts with the BP272, 10 watts with 13.8 volt DC external, single sideband, CW, AM, FM, 
as well as full D-Star functions. Visit icomamerica.com slash amateur for more information on ICOM radios. Really, if you weren't an LSU fan and you didn't have one of their shirts, like, like you, and you didn't have that shirt you were wearing right now, but you were going to grab something handy. Here, I put myself in that position. I've got a, a hat and a shirt, so I went up to you a little bit. Oh, wow. How could I get one of those if I wasn't a professor? Well, it's pretty easy, really. All you got to do is send an email to hamcollege at amateurlogic.tv. You don't have to be a ham. All you need is a name and an email address. And uh, if you want to put a note in there, that's fine. We always like to read them. But uh, send your name to, to hamcollege at amateurlogic.tv, and you'll be put in the drawing each month. Um, so if you don't win this month, be sure to send it in for the next month because the queue gets cleared out after each drawing. Start over from scratch again. But yep. uh, this is a nice shirt, good good heavy-duty shirt, and you'll look just as good leaving the ham fest as you did when you got there. How can you argue with that? The price is just, right, too. Cheap, uh, the price is right, too. Cheap old man approved. Yep. yep. No doubt. So get your cards and letters in, or, well, emails in today. Our but winner is Clay N5OF from Mesquite, Texas. And oh, congratulations, Clay. He said, enjoying the show. Congrats, Clay. And we're enjoying the show, too. Yep, you'll be looking sharp at the next HamFest. Well, you will, whenever uh, whenever HamFest are back. True. It, they'll be I back. I expect it won't be too much longer, hopefully. Yeah, they'll be back sometime in 2021, I'm, I feel for certain. Okay, let's see. Who asked the last one? I don't think you asked me the last one, so I'll ask you this one. What is the Cabrillo format? Is it A, a standard for submission of electronic contest logs? B, a method of exchanging information during a contest QSO? C, the most common set of contest rules? Or D, the rules of order for meetings between contest sponsors. I'm going to go ahead and scratch off D right now because that is not it. See the most common set of contest rules. No, it's not contest rules either. And it's not a, a QSO exchange for a contest. It's it's a a standard for submission of electronic contest logs. I remember seeing that uh in uh, some of the logging software to export to that format. Um, so, yeah, that's going to be a standard for submission of electronic contest logs. That's what most of them are saying in the chat room there, and uh, that is correct. And Cabrillo format uh, is one that ARRL uses. So, you know, your logging software is going to want to export that for sure so that you can mm-hmm. upload those to ARRL and don't have to hand submit a log of some type. Yeah. That's a good thing. Oh, yeah. 
Which of the following contacts may be confirmed through the U.S. QSL Bureau system? A, special event contacts between stations in the U.S. B, contacts between a U.S. station and a non-U.S. station. C, repeater contacts between U.S. club members. Or D, contacts using tactical call signs. Which of the following contacts may be confirmed through the U.S. QSL Bureau system? D, contacts using tactical call signs. No, I don't think so. C, repeater contacts between U.S. club members. Why would you want... Well, I guess some people maybe do send some QSL cards to contacts on repeaters, but I would think that's pretty rare. Um, A. Yeah, I would think so. Special event contacts between stations in the U.S. And no, um, and you really wouldn't need that so much as you would for B, contacts between a U.S. station and a non-U.S. station. I'm going to say that's the answer. Most, well, I believe most people got that one correct. So, let's see. Although there was some, uh, a little split on mm, that one. Mostly. Contacts between a U.S. station and a non-U.S. station. If you make a lot of DX contacts to other countries, uh, and those countries, or, or the people in those countries send you a QSL card, or you want to send some to them, it's very expensive to to do foreign mail to send cards. Especially, you know, if you got 50 of them or so that you've gathered up and you want to send off. Mm-hmm. What right. you, we've got a QSL bureau system that handles that. Uh, they will contact you if there's a lot of cards that have been sent in from some foreign country. They'll group them all together, the the Bureau will. In the U.S. here, they'll take all the cards they've collected and send like a batch of cards to each country ever so often. And you don't pay the huge fees for doing that. It's a much smaller fee. And the same thing for receiving cards. You know, they'll receive cards that are coming to you for contacts that you have made to uh, foreign stations. But these stations will send them to the uh, QSL Bureau here in the U.S., and then those bureaus are responsible for sending them to you. And they may ask a small fee, you know, just uh, for you to donate to kind of help support that, because it does cost them a little bit to do it and to send cards back and forth. But that's essentially what a QSL bureau is. Yeah, it's a good service. Yeah, and there's there's more than one in the U.S. I think usually it's by zones. They kind of have them uh, separated out. But Okay, next one for you. What type of equipment is commonly used to implement an amateur radio mesh network? A, a 2-meter VHF transceiver with a 1,200-baud modem. 
B, an optical cable connection between the USB ports of two separate computers. C, a wireless router running custom firmware. Or D, a 440 megahertz transceiver with a 9600 baud modem. Okay, what type of equipment is commonly used to implement an amateur radio mesh network? Well, we earlier we said that uh, the mesh network uh, was not operating on those some of these frequencies that are listed on here. That it was in the 2.4 gigahertz stuff that we have access to the hardware, right? I, I know the answer to this anyway, but. Um, the other question sort of made it a little easier, you know, if you didn't. So it's not going to be 440 megahertz transceiver. It's not going to be two meters. And it's not an optical con cable connection between two ports of uh, USB ports, because that wouldn't be much of a mesh network. Um, anyway, it's going to be C, a wireless router running custom firmware. Um that's that's what everybody's saying over in the chat room, and and even email as cheap as he is. He's <laughs> he's saying C is in cheap. I'll agree yeah, with so, you. because you remember I said I was going to set try to set up a note on that, and my old neutered uh, WRT54G Linksys router wouldn't run it. Two meter VHF transceiver with a twelve hundred baud modem. You know you could sling some bits with something like that. Oh yeah, <laughs> we have sent a lot of bits on twelve hundred baud of well, we have, two meters in the past. But I sent more on it with twenty four hundred because uh, that was my first TNC was a uh, the MFJ that had would do twelve or twenty four hundred. Oh, there you go. I wish I had a ninety six hundred, but. You know, back in the day when I was doing packet, you, you would have had to modify your radio, really, to take advantage of that. Why might a DX station state that they're listening on another frequency? A, because the DX station may be transmitted on a frequency that is prohibited to some responding stations. B, to separate the calling stations from the DX stations. C, to improve operating efficiency by reducing interference. Or D, all of these choices are correct. I'm, I'm sure glad that D choice is in there, because otherwise it would have been hard for me to pick out an answer on this one. Because all of them make sense. A, because a DX station may be transmitted on a frequency that is prohibited to some responding stations. That's true, you know, and uh, different countries, they have different band plans there. Uh, the portions of the band here that we may only be allowed to operate CW on, they may have single sideband permissions there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I've heard that quite a bit before. And, you know, just different band plans between the different countries around the world, um, particularly different uh, zones. And so, yeah, uh, if they were transmitting down where they were licensed, we couldn't. But they could listen to a frequency that we can transmit on because you can listen to any frequency. And that way, that that makes that uh, a good way to do it. B, to separate the calling stations from the DX stations. Well, it would be a little easier if, 
you know, if uh, you got a hundred people there trying to contact the same DX station, if you were hearing the DX station on one frequency and everybody responded on another by using, say, split in their radio, it would make it easier because if other people were talking at the same time as a DX station, you, you may not be able to hear that station. C, to improve operating efficiency by reducing interference. Same thing as B. I mean, basically the same reason. So, I, yeah, D, all of these choices are correct. What do you think, Dino? Uh, I think you're spot on. Everybody else in the chat Not self-spotting. Yep. But yeah. Yep, not self-spotting. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, well, how should you generally identify your station when attempting to contact a DX station during a contest or in a pileup? A, send your full call sign once or twice. B, send only the last two letters of your call sign until you make contact. C, send your full call sign and grid square. Or D, send the call sign of the DX station three times, the words, this is, then your call sign three times. Boy, some of these, you're you're going to make a lot of friends. (laughs) Yeah, you don't don't just send your last two uh, two letters. It's not B. And the grid square might be part of the exchange, but that's not how you uh, try to make a contact, to initiate the contact. Um, send the call sign of the DX station three times? No, <laughs> that's, that's not right either. It's going to be A, send your full call sign once or twice. Yeah. And, I'm going to agree with you. That makes sense to me. If they hear you, they'll they'll come back to you. Yeah, that's that's what they're basically saying over in the chat room. That's all. I mean, really, if you get on there and you're saying their call sign three times, and then this is, and your call sign three times, look how many people you're going to be jamming at the same time. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, for efficiency. Yeah, it's A there. Yeah. You get a you get a whole call sign, an entire call sign. So just using the last two letters of it's probably not the recommended method either. Yeah, true. I would agree with that. But you do hear some of you do hear some of that. Some people occasionally will just do the last two or three letters of their call sign. That's not that's not proper practice though. So. What techniques do individual nodes use to form a mesh network? A, forward error correction and Viterbi codes. I'm, uh, somebody's going to correct me on that. I'm sure I, I butchered that. That's as close as I would have got. B, <laughs> acting as store and forward digipeters. C, discovery and link establishment protocols. Or D, Custom code plugs for the local trunking system. What techniques do individual nodes use to form a mesh network? It's not D, custom code plugs for the local trunking system. 
Yeah, they probably wouldn't want you using a trunking system for mesh networking. Uh, hey, forward error correction and whatever kind of codes you said there. Um, no, because then you're sending a lot of redundant data and you're taking up extra, uh, you're taking up extra bandwidth doing that. And on a mesh network, you're going to get an acknowledgement back that your transmission was received and if it wasn't, you know, they'll uh, send you back a knack, and you'll know, well, we need to send that again. Um, a, oh, excuse me, B, acting as a store and forward digipeters. Now, I mean, we do use digipeters, and that's a good way to transfer data over a large area uh, because one station can pick it up repeat it back to the other stations out there that couldn't hear your signal and just goes on where you can cross the country or, um, you know, uh, big networks like that. But that's not what we use for mesh networking, although it is a good practice. But uh, what you need for mesh networking, because people are just going to be turning on these nodes on their Wi-Fi router, you know, with the correct firmware. So you need a way to discover and and establish links between those so that you don't have to know that there is this station that's out here that you need to connect to. You'll just see when he comes online, Mm -hmm. and it'll automatically establish the connections among the, the various stations there. That's my answer. I'm going to say it's C. Your answer, you're sticking to it? I'm sticking to it, and I'm in good company because that's what I'm I'm seeing over there in the chat room. Yeah, I would agree with that one. It makes sense. It does. It's uh, really kind of interesting. Uh, it's interesting technology. I'm surprised it's not any – actually, I think in some parts of the country it, it is fairly popular. Yeah, um, but it just never really got off, took off here. I know somebody that was trying to set it up, um, but anyway, that was back actually when I was trying to play around with it with my old router. Yeah, um, that's the problem around here is, you know, we we're spread out more than say big city or or some area, and so we don't have the individual nodes close enough together to be, you know, able to to form a network because. You know, 2.4 gigs, yeah, you're going to have to have uh, some height and, you know, possibly even have the gear on the tower or an antenna, but you're going to lose so much in that feed line if you do that. Right. Uh, You know, you just got to have enough nodes close enough together to pull that off. We don't here. I think maybe emailing them or doing that down around Slidell. I, I don't know. We'll have to get him to tell us. You would have to be very close because think about, like, if you have your your Wi-Fi there at your home QTH and you go out with your uh, your tablet or your phone or something hooked to the Wi-Fi, how far you can get? You you don't get very far. Oh yeah. Before you lose it, uh, some you know a lot of them do good to get across the yard. Yeah, and if you look at you, you know your phone or whatever, 
you're wanting to connect to a Wi-Fi signal, you'll get a list, and you'll probably see your neighbors in there. Um, of course, they're they're going to be uh, these days. You know, they're going to have a secure accounts, so you're not going to be able to really siphon off Wi-Fi from them like you could in the old days when you know people weren't really using passwords or encryption. You know, in the old Cantana days? In the old Cantana days, because I actually did that as a backup. You know, the Cantana was good for shooting down the end of the street to the neighbors, uh, you know, if, you're, uh, if your broadband was down. But, you know, I can see, I don't know, maybe six or eight different Wi-Fi networks, but that doesn't mean I could connect to that many. Most of them, the signal's probably going to be so weak that it, it would be useless even if I could connect yeah. to them. Yeah, yeah, that's how it is here. I can see about eight of them here. Yeah, um, but but the signal is very weak on them. Now I am thinking that uh, maybe if you, what are those things? I think email's got one. The ubiquity. Uh, oh yeah, stuff you know. Those are dishes, and, you know, it's kind of like the active antenna I built. You know, all the the transmitter and receiver are right there at the antenna. And you, you mount those on your tower, and they're not super expensive. I don't know if anybody has hacked the firmware for them where we could use them for this, but, you know, that seemed like, you know, something like that might, well, it would definitely increase range if if the mm-hmm. gear will do it. Oh, yeah. If you don't know what a cantana is, go look at uh, episode three of AmateurLogic.tv. Oh, is that what it was? That's the cantana episode. Wow. I didn't remember which one it was, but yeah, it was one of the very early ones there. So. Yeah, interesting stuff. That was that was good times, I think. And it may still be. We had more views of that than anything else. Because at the time, cantinas were a really hot thing, and there there weren't very many podcasts around. Yeah. You remember people used to go out and uh, do, uh, I think it was called war driving or something, looking yep. for open hot spots yep. using a cantana or something like that in a laptop. Yeah. You know, well, we'll talk about it when we come back. Uh, we'll we'll pick up with the topic of war driving there because I had an idea years ago, but uh, I should have done it, but I never did. Anyway, we'll be right back. Uh, we've got a little time to go. We're through with the questions for tonight, but we'll we'll come back and visit with you here in just a moment. So don't go away. Are you new to the ham world or an existing amateur operator who wants to take your license to the next level? Study for your radio license exam at hamstudy.org. Hamstudy.org is a free online learning tool powered by ICOM. It was created by Richard Bateman, KD7BBC, Michael Stuffelbeam, KV9G, and Rich Porter, KK6GKE, and it uses a modern web design to enhance the experience of studying for your technician, general, and amateur extra exams. Since 2013, hamstudy.org has helped new and existing hams to familiarize themselves with the question pools, use stats-based flashcards to focus on material they need to learn, 
and take practice exams to gauge progress. Visit hamstudy.org on your desktop computer or mobile device. Register for a free account at hamstudy.org to access personalized study history and other site features. Prepare for an exam in an intuitive and comprehensive manner. Check out hamstudy.org powered by ICOM for free learning tools. Good luck on your next exam. And that is a great resource for your ham radio studies there. They, they've really yeah, set absolutely. up a nice, nice platform there where you can go on and study at your own pace and keep track of how you're doing and get suggestions on where you need help, areas that you might want to do a little extra study on. So, yeah, absolutely. Go check it out. Yeah, hamstudy.org. Well, where we left off here, and we'll get back to this in a second, but because of the way that the steel frames are lined up in tonight's show, and because you still, you could lose that shirt at any time. <laughs> <laughs> if you need another shirt. I'm not really not a gambling man. <laughs> <laughs> well. If you found yourself in that predicament, or if you just wanted to look really sharp at the next ham fest, there you go. There's a place that you could do that. Amateurlogic.spreadshirt.com. We've got Amateur Logic and Ham College swag in there t shirts, regular shirts, ball caps, cups, mugs, backpacks, all kinds of things. Amateurlogic.spreadshirt.com. Back to the topic of war driving there. Yeah, we used to use software called NetStumbler that you'd run on your laptop and turn on your Wi-Fi, and you'd see all the the signals of, of various SSIDs on there and their strength and such as that, and you could try connecting to different folks. It used to be a really big thing. Not so much anymore, but I had the idea because also around that time period, most uh, radios in your cars, some some older vehicles, you know, they wouldn't have a CD player in them, and CDs were popular then. Certainly wouldn't have an MP3 player in there or anything like that. And we'd use FM modulators. You could plug that into a portable CD player or to uh, your iPod or whatever you had and broadcast it out at low power on an FM signal. And you could pick that up and tune it in on your car radio. So it just gave, and I still have some of those devices, just gave you a good way to, you know, get some other audio into your car stereo system. Now, you know, uh, most vehicles have an auxiliary input or something of that nature, so the modulators aren't needed as much. But I was thinking it'd be cool to go up, say, to uh, a busy intersection or a stoplight or something and sit there and try to find the different modulators as people drove by and Mm. see what they were listening to. Yeah, that would be kind of interesting. Yeah. Back in the day, you might have found a few. Today, I don't know. Probably not so much. Yeah, probably they use what I use. I don't have uh, Bluetooth built into my... My vehicle, it's a, it's an older truck, and uh, still got low miles on it, and it's paid for, so I'm not upgrading. 
But anyway, I have a little Bluetooth receiver that I put in that I can pair to my to my phone and play music through that. Um, but the FM modulator days, I think those are pretty much gone now. Yeah, my uh, my pickup has a Bluetooth on the stereo system there, but I don't use it because anytime I get a phone call, it interrupts whatever I'm listening to on the radio. And it just, I don't know, it just seemed like such a big hassle that I i eventually quit using it. Um, but I didn't need it really that much anyway because my stereo system had enough on it. But in my Explorer, no, it's older vehicle. It It doesn't have Bluetooth, but it does have an auxiliary jack on it. And it never worked right, man. You know, I could plug in my my phone to it and play some audio and it only come out of one speaker and it just didn't sound right and after i had that vehicle for two or three years i finally decided one day i'm going to figure this out and i ripped the radio and all out of the dashboard and took it apart and actually traced out the multi-pin connector there to see where all the wires were going and I found what looked to me like it was going to be the auxiliary input to the radio. And then I ohmed out the wiring harness in the vehicle, and it wasn't the same. Hmm. Something, I don't know if it was just mine or if maybe it was a flaw in the uh, the wiring diagrams on a, or the wiring harnesses on a 2013 Ford Explorer, but I ended up going in there and modifying the wiring harness to correct it, and it looks oh. fine now. But, oh, wow. Yeah. Talk about a man on a mission, man. I spent a lot of time hunting that down. <laughs> oh, that's, that's dedication right there. It is, you know. If you got two ears and you like listening to music, you probably want to use both of them. Yeah, it works better like that. I think so. I can I can get the Bluetooth module and plug into my truck, but it it's got a place for it, but it didn't come installed, and it's like four hundred and something dollars. Ooh, it's not really worth it. No, it's not. I've got one of those little receivers like you talked about, but I I hadn't really used it because it takes like AAA batteries. Oh, mine's got a lithium battery. You can tr- plug it up and charge it. That makes more sense. Yeah, it doesn't sound great, though. No, mine doesn't either. And, you know, Bluetooth is that's one of those things. If if they're using Aptex, uh, Kodak in it, you know, that can sound pretty good. And you, you know all about that because we did it mm-hmm. years ago. Um, but if some of the other stuff, though, you know, low bit rate, it's not... Not very good. Oh, Craig says he was a war dotter long before there were war drivers. Yeah. You remember war dollars? Yeah. Yep. Never did it, but I do remember that. I didn't either. You know, people would uh, program up their car. I don't know. If, I assume you could download software or write your own. To, you yeah. just sit there and use your modem and just dial random numbers 
Our number's in a sequence. Do you find an open modem line? Yep. And then see if you could connect to it. Yeah, I stayed away from the whole hacker thing is pretty much that. You know, I, I didn't yeah. get too involved in that. But uh, it, It's fascinating to me, but I, I just never wanted to do that. Yeah. It's fascinating that the people that can... Yeah, but I'm way too paranoid to try to do something like that. I have no no desire to do. Yeah, I bet today you could start war dialing, man, and it might take you a week or so before you ever run across your first modem. There's (laughs) yeah, no kidding. Yeah, there's not hard. Probably not too many of them left. No, I've still got a uh, U.S. robotics sportster. 56K, I think. Yeah. I've still got one. Yeah. I don't have a computer with a serial port to plug it up to. I've got... I've got one right here. Okay. Mine's the old white one. Yeah. I I have a white one of my own. This one actually goes to one of my transmitter sites. And it may be bad. I brought it here to test it, but I haven't checked it out yet. I can't get it to work at the site, though. It never answers, so uh, it probably took a lightning strike. Maybe somebody wore dial into it. Could be. But, yeah. Modems were cool things, man. I remember I used to like to play around with the AT commands on them. Oh, yeah. I, I went from, my first modem was a 300 baud, and then I joined CompuServe, and it didn't take me long to justify going to a 1200 baud, the expense. Because, you know, I was, I was saving four times the money on connections. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then the, the 2400. Well, from there, it just went crazy, man. <laughs> I remember when everybody had 300s and a buddy of mine. He lived on one street over from where you live. He called me. He's like, Tommy, I just got a 1,200 baud internal modem card. You have got to come see it. And so I, I, I just stopped everything and drove over there and said to see how it did. And uh, it was, I had modem envy. After that, oh yeah, back in the late seventies when the TRS eighties came out, uh, I was working at a Radio Shack dealer store, and Jim, remember Jim, the Torch? Oh yeah, oh yeah, one of the uh, original hosts of Amateur Logic. Jim was working there at the same time, and we had that TRS-80 back there, and we played with it some. We didn't do a whole lot with it. We didn't have a modem or anything. And then we kind of, he went one way and I went another, and we ended up in different cities. And just a few years later, I went by to visit with him, and he had a TI-99. Oh. You know, the... Little Texas Instrument computers, and and I had, yeah. you know, I had played with the Trash Eighty, and I knew how addictive something like that could be. So I never got into it. Plus, I didn't have a thousand bucks spent on a computer then. 
Um, but he had the TI-99, <laughs> and he was showing me how cool it was. And, of course, plugged into a TV set for a monitor. And he had, and I noticed Marty mentioned it there. It made me think of it. He had the 300 baud acoustic modem where, you know, you'd pick up your phone and you'd dial and you'd plug it down. In the acoustic coupler? Yeah, in the acoustic coupler. And and he connected to some bulletin boards, of course, where he lived in. They were all long distance. Long distance wasn't uh, very cheap back in those days. But anyway, it kind of... It kind of whet my appetite to get into computers then. I, I still I, I managed to stall for another couple of years or so, but eventually I had to give in. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And I'm, I'm sure you're glad you did. It's fun stuff. Oh, yeah. I don't know I when we all met. that stuff. I make my living off of that, playing around with that stuff now. Well. That's kind of got me started. I have for a lot of years, and it's instrumental in my my jobs, I said plural, I have more than one. But, yeah, for, well, for a lot of years, that was, you know, my only gig. And, I, yeah, I'm really glad that I finally bit the bullet and did it. And when we met, it was online. Yeah, bulletin board system. Yep. I don't know. Yeah, it sure was. We probably, I don't know if we had... I'm guessing we probably had 2,400 baud modems then. I don't I don't remember. Maybe. It would probably have been around the time when I switched from 24 to 9,600 baud, maybe. So I can't remember for sure which one I had at the time. Yeah. But, uh, it was right through that time when the 96s were coming out. Well, if you had a 96, I'm sure I got one just like, like <laughs> that because we had a... That's a good show. We had a thing going for several years where one of us would buy something, then the other one would could justify it and would buy one. Too. Oh yeah, it's a little little minor arm twisting. Yep, it wasn't very hard to do, you know. No, no, it still isn't. No, it's not. <laughs> well, there's a lot of folks use. Uh, I'm looking in here, ninety six hundred baud's, fourteen dot four. Yeah, I had that, and the twenty eight dot eight, John. Um, hmm, Chip posted a link in there to Modern War Dialing. I'll have to check that out. Huh. I don't. Not, yeah, same here. Yeah. Did anyone else use ISDN for data? I didn't, Marty, but trying to think of who did. I think Jimmy Jimmy had that at work. I th- um, yeah, I think you're right. I never, I never had it. Uh, I wanted it. It was, but it was a little pricey for me to have at home at the time. Yeah, back in the day. Oh yeah, definitely. And I remember, well, when uh, when DSL was first getting around, and you and I got yeah. Telocity. Telocity. Yeah. Telocity was awesome back when it was still here. Oh it yeah. It was like. All ports were wide open, man. They, nobody stopped you from doing anything. Yep. And it was much, much faster than a 56K modem. Just, oh, yeah. 
But now compared to, you know, gig speed internet out there, it was like a, it was like a 300 ball modem or worse, relatively speaking. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, but back in the day, it was bleeding edge stuff. Yeah, Marty says he had some paid really good money for that back then, too, which was a lot of money for that time. Yeah. Uh, Marty says he had two circuits with four bonded data channels. 256K. Wow. He was smoking, man. He was the man. Yeah. He still is. Um, Nigel says he did get a Radio Shack analog multimeter. It cost more than the new price from eBay UK. Yeah, I had a few Radio Shack analog multimeters over the years. Spike says local billboards went with cell phone numbers routed to a landline. I hadn't thought about that, but Yes, you could. <laughs> Craig said he can't remember last week, but he can remember his CompuServe ID from the 80s. I could probably almost recall mine. I know it started with a 8-1, I'm pretty sure. Oh, it sounded like John had the first modem, same as me, the Commodore 1660 baud. Yeah. My first one was Radio Shack 300 baud um, for the Tandy Color Computer, the Coco 2. Mm-hmm. But it did, it was a 300 baud. It didn't have an acoustic coupler. You plugged in line, and you had to pick up the phone, dial the phone, and then once you heard the, the uh, modem tone, then you hit the red button on the thing. It didn't have any way to dial it. Wow. It was a manual, basically a manual modem. It worked, but it was a kind of a pain. I didn't use that one for very long. You can, I'm sure you can understand why. Oh, yeah. I know. I feel your pain. <laughs> Andy says he had a Zoom 6-line 56K for BBS. <clears throat> ran for a few years around 1993. Yeah, I ran BBS for a little while. I ran one off that Tandy... Color computer. <laughs> Jocelyn says his kids don't understand how he could use a computer without the internet. We didn't know. We didn't know about the internet. Yeah, it was all bleeding edge back then. Yep. Oh, copy BBS. parties. Yeah, we better not talk about copy parties. But, yeah, that's where you got together with some of your buddies and you all brought your computers and the, or a the box of floppies. Discs. Yep. You go buy those verbatims because you get them cheap. The cheapest disc out there. And you just fill them up. Oh, Chip had a TRS-100. Wow. And also a 120. Still have <laughs> them. They both work. Okay, Chip. You're going to have to do a little show and tell on that. I guess we ought to uh, get out of here for tonight. We've run over a little, but it was a lot of fun. We'll have to revisit these subjects again. Yeah, it's an interesting stroll down memory lane. Yeah. 
to give me a chance to get out my uh, my Tandy Pocket computer. Oh man, I wish I still had mine. I gave mine to my son, and uh, so you know, there's no telling where it ended up. But I know he doesn't have it. I think this is a PC four. Well, Nigel put glasses on to see it now. I didn't want to buy it. Well, Nigel's headed up the Wooden Hill, so I guess right. that's our cue. Seventy-three, cube. Nigel. Yep. So thanks for joining us on Ham College this week. Do your studying. There's going to be a test. You know what? It was just Thanksgiving. The next time uh, we have a Ham College, it'll be Christmas will be passed. So everybody have a safe and happy Christmas holiday. And uh hope you had a great Thanksgiving as well, the ones that are over here celebrating it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, over the holidays, you might be looking for some other activities. We'll be back around the 15th with the next Amateur Logic and around the end of the year with the next Ham College. But on Tuesday nights, you might find this entertaining. Tell us about that, Tommy. Yeah, we've got the Amateur Logic Soundcheck Net. This this past Tuesday, it was actually the uh, turkey drop net. But uh, anyway, they're every Tuesday night, 8 o'clock Central Time or 0200 UTC, same time this live stream usually starts. Uh, it's really well connected. Uh, we're using uh, Jeff K8JTK, Brad N8PC, uh, their uh, connected systems, their hubs. And we've got pretty much every mode you can think about connected together it's a lot of fun there's usually uh, a question you can you know answer if you want to but it's not required and uh, we take check-ins multiple check-ins are encouraged so uh, if you use uh, d-star and dmr and fusion or whatever if you want to check in three times and get on the log three times then that's that's encouraged it's just a lot of fun it's a good way to spend some time and uh uh, I think you, you'll enjoy it, so come check it out. Also, throughout the month, if you want to check in and see what's going on or find out when the next episode will be streamed live, you can do that by going to the Ham College Society there. That's facebook.com <laughs> slash group slash ham college. Or you can follow us around. Twitter, at ham college. We also have at amateur logic. Yep. Or and go, go for it. Groups.io slash G slash Amateur Logic. That's another option you may want there if you're avoiding the whole Twitter and Facebook thing. That's not a bad one. You won't get many uh, emails on that one. Just a, a few important ones, you know, to let you know uh, when the next show will be. Yeah, if you're not familiar with Groups.io, it's it's almost uh, like a mailing list. Uh, so it's not something that you have to go check in. Uh, you don't see ads or anything like that. And we don't we don't send a lot of messages out, um, just occasion. Mostly the notices for the shows and the net. Mm-hmm. So good option if um, yeah if you don't really do the social media thing. Also, you can get the show notes, find out what we talked about in each episode. Amateurlogic.tv slash wiki. Notes for Amateur Logic and Ham College, both there. Yep. So with that, uh, I think it's a wrap. And I appreciate everyone with us. And 
Um, you know, Thanksgiving weekend here in the U.S., good times, although it is 2020. Yeah, I think I'm going to go hit the uh, Thanksgiving leftovers when this is finished. Turkey. Okay. (laughs) All right. 7-3, everyone. 7-3, everybody. What did we talk about on the last episode? Do you recall? Well, I seem to remember that we talked about uh, contest and DX operating, remote operating techniques, something format because it got cut off on my paper, and QS selling and RF network connected systems, best I can recall. Hmm. <laughs> Uh, we weren't doing the same show then. Uh, I was at a different show last time. I thought we talked about television practices. Oh, we sure did. Didn't... What would you grab? Well, hold on. well, let me put myself in that position. Okay. Here, I grabbed something. I even got a hat to go with it. Oh, nice. Yes, yeah, if I hit my microphone. C, an optical router running custom firmware. You want to read that again? You said an optical router. Yeah, I'm wondering I, I how I even got that myself. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to see that if we, yeah. when I next time I come over there. Or can I see those? Sure, if I can find one, you can see it.